Hey, we've been sharing this with you uh, all week. We are glad that we are able to close things out today with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith. He is the Dean of the School of Arts and Humanities at Cedarville University, the Director of the Center for Political Study and Professor of Political Science there. And we need to get some perspective because as we all watched last week, kind of horrified, uh, as before Congress, uh, three of the leading uh, institutions, academic institutions, the presidents of those institutions, MIT, UPenn, and Harvard, all squirmed in their seats when they were asked about the simple things of moral judgment on anti-Semitism and the call for Israel to be eradicated, which, by the way, is called genocide. Dr. Smith, it is good to have you on the program. Thank you for joining us. Uh, it's always a pleasure to be with you. You know, I was uh, just looking uh, three days ago, four days ago or so, Michael Roth, he's the president of Wesleyan University, had written an op-ed, and he said, you know, unfortunately, the three presidents of these universities uh, achieved something in our nation's capital uh, that we never thought was possible, and that was a bipartisan consensus, because everybody came along and said they were wrong, no matter what side of the aisle they were on. And it was definitely a failure, and they were asked to stand up for Jewish students and their colleagues, and they just wavered, he says, in the worst way possible. They were evasive, they used legalistic responses that didn't even recognize the true, real fear that exists on campuses today. Now, you're the dean of the school up there over at uh, Cedarville. I mean, what do you think on this? There's a responsibility that these folks hold over these students. No question. And I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure that the presidents had a lot of um, legal counsel ahead of time. Uh, and even uh, University of Pennsylvania's president, uh, Liz McGill, she's a lawyer. You know, she has a JD. She's been dean of a law school. She teaches constitutional law. So I think she understands the legal issues surrounding this. And I think that they kind of just gave a legal response. Um, a lot of their legal argument was reasonable just as a matter of law, you know, that if the First Amendment uh, and these institutions are private institutions, so they're not bound by the First Amendment, but the First Amendment protects speech, even when that speech is, is hateful and offensive in many ways. And they're trying to make that point that even if something, someone advocating for something as terrible as genocide would often be protected. But obviously, they were in a political situation. You know, they weren't in a courtroom. They weren't being asked to make a legal argument. They were being asked, really, to make a moral judgment, as you yeah. said, about what's happening and about whether or not they're willing to protect the students on their campus. And so I think that they sort of made an, a, a reasonable argument, but in the wrong place. Um, and they really should have made the moral argument you know, we don't know what they believe, honestly, necessarily, about this in their heart of hearts. Uh, so maybe they don't have the same moral convictions that we do when it comes to this issue. But clearly, the lack of moral clarity is what uh, what cost her her job and is what yeah. really is keeping this as an ongoing issue. Yeah. This is incredible. It was stunning to me to hear this testimony. And I was just, part of me just really wondered, too, did they get caught up in the moment and the legality of the argument yeah. for, for legality's sake? And that's what I really want to believe, that this is not what was necessarily in their hearts, but just that they were arguing the legal points. But still, you know, when you, you, you stop and, and think about what was said and the way it was handled, that was just, it really was, as Steve said, horrifying. 
And I'm curious, too, as long as we're talking about the legal aspect of things, because yeah. um, I yeah. wanted to, to mention this as well, because these three schools are not the only schools, obviously, that have been impacted right. by what's happening yeah. between Israel and Hamas. And I've not heard anything uh, new lately out of Cornell, but I know there were issues on the campus of Cornell uh, right. There were some threats made, and it seemed that um, the president of Cornell was not responding at all to cries for help from the Jewish Student Union because right. those kids yeah. were being threatened as well. And yeah. I, I do mean physically threatened and, and notes and such uh, being left threatening the kids, graffiti right. being left. Yeah. What yeah. What is the responsibility there where the president of that university is concerned? And, and even really uh, local police. I know so many campuses obviously have their own security on campus. Yeah. What, what do we do with this? I'm, I am just stunned by the things that I'm seeing. Now, I agree with you. It is uh, remarkable. Um, and I, I think it's, it's been simmering kind of beneath the surface of a lot of these institutions for a while. Uh, but this particular conflict has brought it out into the open. And in, the, in that way, I think it's good. You know, I think we're all getting to see some things that have been existing uh, in some of these elite places for, for quite a while. But an institution, any college, any university, um, when speech turns into threats or intimidation or harassment, then we've moved well past speech and we're getting toward conduct. And that kind of conduct uh, can be curbed and it can be punished. Um, when it becomes individualized, you know, when you target a specific person, a specific uh, area with, with graffiti or vandalism or whatever it may be, then we're moving past speech into something else. And it's also true in some of these situations that these students feel unsafe even to be on the campus. You know, it's not even so much that they feel uh, that someone's leaving a note as they don't even feel comfortable leaving their room. Mm-hmm. And in a situation like that, the, the institution owes them a lot more. You know, they owe them physical protection. Yeah. You know, they owe them, um, if, it, if, if necessary, security to be present and, and make sure that these students are comfortable and are taken care of as much as possible. Um, and that's really the troubling part of this, you know, especially at a place like Cornell. There have been issues at George Washington and others um, where students have just simply not felt physically safe. And that's not acceptable. You know, no student on any campus should be there and feel like their their safety is in jeopardy just because of who they are. How is it that universities can balance free speech? Because that seems to be one of the the places that we go immediately when yep. someone speaks about out against someone else. We say, well, it's their right to speak yep. their mind. But when it becomes threat, where does protective action for those students come into play? Because we saw that at Cornell University where yeah. uh, Jewish students were locked into the library because they were being threatened by other students. And they were, you know, ultimately... Uh, in those situations, they had locked themselves away because they right. they felt physical, uh, yeah. you know, harm could be brought to them. Where is that balance between saying yes, you have a right to say this? However, we are an academic institution with guidelines and expectations right. of behavior, yep. and enforce those things because then you're not taking those away. You are dealing with. A rule breaker in a sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I think the presidents and their um, testimony, their hearing, would have had a lot more credibility if they've shown this approach on their campuses when it comes to other issues and other speakers. Um, 
In other words, you can make this kind of a legal argument that we're here to protect students if there's threat or violence or intimidation, but otherwise free exchange of ideas, we're going to protect the right to speak. But we all know, if we've paid attention over the last couple of decades, that certain voices on these campuses have been limited and they have been silenced. They have been threatened. They've been intimidated. Speakers have been disinvited. Certain points of view have just been deemed unacceptable. And those folks have not gotten the same kind of legal protection um, that these presidents were talking about. And so really it's the rank hypocrisy of what we saw Mm. last week that was really the issue for me. Um, If you're going to be consistent about this and protect speech across the board, then you've got to protect it across the board. We all know, let's, let's not pretend, we all know that if the situation was reversed and there was a group of white supremacist students chanting death to fill in the blank, whatever minority we want to put into that blank, we know that those students would be um, punished, they'd be identified, they'd be punished to the fullest extent of the policies available to them, and the university would have no qualms in doing it whatsoever. In a situation like what you're describing, when students are having to lock themselves into a facility to protect themselves, the students that are, being, that are threatening should be identified, they should be punished to the fullest extent of the policies of the university, and they need to send a message. Their unwillingness to do that speaks volumes, frankly. Well, you know, uh, this comes along at the same time that uh, there was outcry because in Colorado, I know we're shifting a little bit on the topic, but there was an 11-year-old student who was on a class trip who was forced to, well, was she ultimately was not, but she was assigned a room with other girls and where they were sharing beds. Because in the, there were four kids per room, two beds, and they were sharing them. And she was partnered with a transgender boy. And the school then took action, but they were protective of the transgender boy's rights rather yeah. than the girl's right. And so we see this sort of bias to protect yep. Yep. one individual group that we yeah. see as being more exposed and then we fail to give that equally across. Now, so this is not just at university level. This has taken place right. in right. elementary level. It takes place in workplaces um, and other institutions. This is sort of a um, – it really is – this is a, a, a societal problem. So what this is is it's part of a narrative um, – And there's a long historical, philosophical tradition behind this. But this is part of a narrative that if you are part of a so-called oppressed group of people, whether we define that oppression based on sexual orientation or based on transgenderism or racial uh, characteristics or economics or whatever it may be, if you're part of that oppressed group, then you deserve some sort of special protection against the oppressors. The oppressors are people who are colonizers, is the language that's often used, or it's the, the majority, the racial majority, or the economic elites. Once you're sorted as an individual into one of those groups, either the oppressed or the oppressor, the rules seem to change. And let's, it's, just what, it's just the way that it is in this ethical system that we see dominating uh, so many, uh, not just elite universities, as you said, but uh, academic institutions across the country. And I think you could argue this is seeping into corporations. It's seeping into state and local governments. You're seeing this in many more places. And this is, the, this is one of the disputes that we're having right now as a culture. Um, are we going to treat these sorts of cases individually and commonsensically, I would argue, 
Um, or are we going to plug everything into this you know, reductionist narrative that kind of strips away the morality of a situation and just treats be- people based on this particular category? And this is, this is part of our debate, and it's, it's a good debate to have. And so I think that um, what's happened recently with the presidents and what's happening in these other situations is spurring the discussion. And, and, and I think that it's, it's leading us to hopefully a place where we will make more sense of this. Because like the situation you described, or when we talk about um, a transgender uh, person playing in a sport against uh, biological females, I mean, we're getting into situations where I think almost a heavy majority of Americans say, that's just not right. Mm-hmm. Well, we have to assert the fact that it's just not right and move forward. Yeah. Well, it sounds to me, Dr. Smith, there's an awful lot that is ultimately headed toward the laps of the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme yeah. Court, that's going to uh, have to be decided upon, and our voices are going to have to be heard. There's so much, obviously, to be praying over. Yeah. So we would yeah. appreciate Well, I can't believe we're already out of time, but, man, I would love to get you back on the air after the holidays, and we've all yeah. had our – because we're headed for a break, too. I know that you're, you're yep. on break uh, yep. from, from your duties there at Cedarville University, but yep. – Thanks for spending this little bit of time with us this morning to bring some clarity to these issues. It's always a pleasure. Thanks to you and thanks to your listeners, and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. Thank you so much, Dr. Smith.